Hello, and welcome to the Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Inman Narrowin, and I use they-them pronouns. Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness is a collectively-run publisher dedicated to producing and curating intersectional and inclusive culture informed by anarchistic ideals. This can include stories, fiction, poetry, memoir, nonfiction, theater pieces, comic books, pop culture analysis, recipes, music, history, podcasts, and occasionally essays in theory. We are looking for content that doesn't know where it fits in, for people that don't know where they fit in. On this podcast, we have audio versions of our monthly featured zine, read by a brilliant voice actor, along with interviews with the author. If you would like to hold in your hands a hard copy of our monthly feature, please consider subscribing to our Patreon, where you will be mailed a lovely zine once a month, along with occasional other trinkets. Our Patreon helps make things like this podcast possible, as well as supporting other podcasts we put out, like Live Like the World is Dying, hosted by our own Margaret Killjoy. It also helps us pay authors of the monthly features, transcribers, artists, editors, and translators. So if you like what you hear, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. And if you would like to submit a piece that you think would age nicely in our collection, please visit tangledwilderness.org for our submission guidelines. This month, we bring to you a short story by Bella Hangnail called Exclusion, and an interview with her afterwards about the story behind the story. So stick around. We talk about things like moving through trauma and the Ukrainian teenagers who made a subculture out of sneaking into Chernobyl and the story that they inspired. Narrated by Bee Flowers. Published by Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness. She was 18 in the passenger seat of the Toyota Avalon as it bumped and swerved through twisting dirt roads towards the outer edge of the zone. The trees clustered close together and watched the dusty black car as it passed by. Her stomach growled. Hey, give over the damn Chex Mix. The half-empty bag landed in her lap. Pigeon didn't take his eyes off the road, which was turning treacherous the closer they got. He tightened his grip on the wheel, exhaling the stress through his nose. The cheap, salty food wasn't filling, but it took her mind off of her growing anxiety. She glanced at the rearview mirror above her, expecting to see National Guard tanks emerge from the underbrush. Pigeon noticed the nervous look. Hey, we're all good here, girl. We passed them checkpoints a while back. They don't patrol these roads unless someone's gone to ground. He put his hand on her knee and squeezed. She liked it when he did that, even if it didn't help. Three months since they started dating, and she was intoxicated by him. They'd met at the community college where she studied, and he smoked cigarettes in the parking lot. Early on, he'd invited her over to see the basement where he slept, and he'd read her some of his writing about the zone, as if he'd written it for her. And that was that. Pigeon pulled the car roughly off the road into a ditch and cut the engine. She suddenly became aware of the ocean of sound swelling around them, 
bird calls and insects and the distant strangled yelp of a coyote. This is the spot, Pigeon said, unbuckling. We gotta continue on foot. Ahead of them, the forest grew tight and tangled with laurel thickets like barbed wire, the outgrowth of an old nature preserve from before the blast. The Iowa exclusion zone lay beyond. She grabbed her pack from the trunk of the car and counted off its contents on a mental list. She told her mom she was going on a camping trip. They wouldn't be coming back for at least a few days, Pigeon had said. And there was no food or drink to be had in the zone, not if you hoped to see your 50th birthday. Pigeon took a few steps into the woods, then turned back, his own pack hanging off his shoulder. Emily, you coming? Don't be getting cold feet now. She looked back at the road. No tanks. Not yet, anyway. She was 26, and one of her charges was getting on her nerves as they hiked the familiar trails toward the zone's perimeter fence, the dusky sky visible through the treetops. Hatchet, what do you mean you haven't read Permanent Exclusion? The kid was saying. You're a stalker. I thought it was like the foundational text. She snorted. As if. It's rambling and self-important and glosses over all the people who died before the establishment of the zone, not to mention the trauma of the evacuees. They had paid her to sneak them in. That didn't mean she had to be friendly. Behind her, Zeke snapped his fingers. So you have read it, he crowed. I read an early version, okay? That was enough. Head the trees thinned a bit and she led them past thickets of elderberries to the electrified perimeter fence, a hulking metal thing that curved wickedly outward at the top and cut deep through the woods in either direction. She turned to the three figures behind her. Okay, listen up. A zap from this fence won't kill you, but it'll sting like a motherfucker. This fence is mainly a big tripwire alarm. If one of us sets it off, they'll be able to pinpoint our location. One of the others spoke up, the larger, bespeckled one with a chin-strap beard. I don't know if I can climb that thing. Don't worry, we'll get through just fine. Follow me. She led them to a creek bed that still hosted a trickle of brown water. The fence had been built when the small river ran higher, its electrified wires strung at the old water line. The ghost of a creek, friendly to travelers and stalkers alike. She got down on her hands and knees. Through here. Watch your extremities. Her charges followed behind as she carefully avoided the electrified wires and the fence posts sunken into the creek, crawling through the narrow gap. Once safely passed, she turned around to watch the three men take their first steps into the zone. Zeke came first, scrabbling and careless, all eager teenage fervor. The larger man, Bancroft, followed, sweat beating in his receding hairline, panting breaths fogging up his glasses. He stood up and glanced around at the trees as if he'd expected them to be bright purple. There was a sharp discharge of electricity and a cry from the creek bed. Hatchet dove forward and helped her third client clamber out, a thin, wiry man named Shahar. I can't feel my hand, he moaned, clutching his left arm. It'll come back. We need to move. She hurried them into a clearing 50 meters past the border and pointed to an outcropping of rocks in a small gully, the stones blanketed with graffiti. Get under there, quickly, now. They hustled down into the ravine and hunkered down in the scraggly bushes. Shahar massaged his hand and groaned. Hatchet didn't dare to breathe. 
A few minutes later, the low juddering of a helicopter swept through the trees, growing louder until the dead leaves in the gully danced. A spotlight crept through the forest. She held her charges back from looking up at the chopper, their ribs vibrating with the din of the rotors. An eternity passed, and the spotlight moved on. Hatchet looked up at the hostile sky. We're not safe here. Let's put some distance between us and the fence before we sleep. I'm sorry, everyone, said Shahar, nursing his numb hand. She put her hand on his shoulder and looked into his weary eyes. It's not your fault, man. It could have been any of us. Roll the dice. He didn't seem reassured, but he said nothing, and they continued on, into the zone, and the approaching night. Pigeon woke her with a kiss on their forehead. Hey, Em, sun's rising. She opened her eyes, expecting to see her bedroom ceiling back home. She saw, instead, the rotting timbers of a barn they had bedded down in for a night, a few miles past the perimeter of the exclusion zone. They were really here. She sat upright on her sleeping bed and stretched, enjoying the near-unbroken silence. The only sounds she could hear were birds singing in the trees outside and the scribbling of Pigeon's pen as he wrote in a heavily stickered composition notebook. He stared out the broken shutters of a window and wrote a few more lines, then put his pen down and cleared his throat. <clears throat> the Exclusion Zone a hundred square miles of twisted apocalyptic beauty, in sharp contrast to the humdrum Midwestern Dust Bowl states surrounding. Thirteen years ago, the meltdown of the Cedar Rapids nuclear plant caused around 200 times the radioactive payload of the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki to run rampant in the Iowan countryside, not 20 miles from where I sit now. He took a breath and continued excitedly. Once its human inhabitants were evacuated, the zone became a refuge for flora and fauna long thought extinct in these parts. Herds of elk now roam through cornfields, liberated from the tyranny of monocultures and pesticides, and buffalo have returned to graze on irradiated wheat and grain. I sit in the valley of death as it teems with virulent life, and I wonder if the real disease is the civilization we've built." What the world might look like if all lands were free from our influence and allowed to thrive wildly again. Here, in the exclusion zone, I see a preview of the oncoming post-human Earth, and I celebrate its arrival. He snapped the book shut and grinned at her. What do you think? Emily smiled at her boyfriend. It's great. I love the way you put words together. They fired up Pigeon's propane stove in the barn and cooked their first zone meal, two bags of freeze-dried mac and cheese. Just add water, Emily said, frowning at the withered clumps of white goop that clung to the pasta on her fork. It tasted even worse than it looked. She didn't complain. In the daylight, the zone was every bit as beautiful as Pigeon had described, a vast prairie of tall grasses rolling with the breeze. Bright buttercups and golden green stalks of wild corn grew every which way, slowly encroaching on old dirt roads that had once demarcated rural Iowan farms. Many families of birds sang overhead in oak and hickory trees, not knowing to be afraid of her. She followed Pigeon down a gravel road, away from the barn and the distant tree line they had hiked out from the night before. He looked back at her and smiled toothily. "'I'm so glad you're here, Emily.' What I wouldn't give to be in your shoes seeing this place for the first time. 
Well, actually, it's not really my first time. I grew up kind of near here. I guess I didn't tell you. Her feet dragged in the dust and she felt awkward for bringing it up. Wait, how long ago? She thought back. I guess I was born here? I don't remember anywhere else before the accident. Pigeon stopped and looked at her. So you were living out here when? Emily grimaced. Yeah, we got evacuated along with everyone else. I barely remember. It was so fucking long ago. The snow falling in summer, glazing the windowsill, chalky and bitter on her tongue. She had giggled and shrieked with delight and run to show her best friend. Alicia had been her name, maybe? Christ, you never told me that. What was it like? Pigeon had a look on his face almost like hunger. She wondered if everything she said to him now would end up in the zine he was writing. Not very incredible at all, honestly. They put us on some buses and we never came back. That's basically the whole story. They passed an elk lounging in the grass by the side of the road. It looked at them dully, unbothered by their presence, its face a mass of swollen tumors. Bancroft had a camera out and was filming the herd of buffalo. Hatchet had gone to pee on a bush, and when she returned, the large man was muttering into a microphone, panning the camera around to take in the prairie around them and the small army of bison that pawed at the dirt and snorted. She slapped the device out of his hand, its lens shattered on a rock. The fuck are you doing? Startled, he squared up his burly frame against her slight one. Why'd you do that for, huh? Her voice dropped an octave. We are, right now, committing a federal crime and you're filming it? Video evidence alone could send us all to jail for a long time. I can't, I won't, he started to say. He sighed and picked up the broken camera. It's just that people deserve to know that this is being kept from them. What are you talking about? It's a disaster area. Yeah, but... And his tone became conspiratorial. Is it? Is there actually, probably, any danger still? Or is that just what the National Guard is telling us? Hatchet laughed out loud to the sky. Ha! <laughs> you think the government is lying about the radiation? You think I'm fucking lying to you? I'm not calling you a liar, he backpedaled. But it's hard times for good honest farmers out there. He bent down and scooped up a handful of dirt and weeds. Look at how much is growing in this dirt. How come good folks out there are scraping dust and shit when this is here? Because it's radioactive, Shahar spoke up. You eat anything grown here so close to an ongoing nuclear meltdown, you'll get cancer and very probably fucking die. All right, look, pal. Bancroft was flared hot now. You don't get to tell me shit about shit, all right? I'm a journalist. I run a website for concerned citizens. Why is the government so afraid to let people in here? People ought to know. I'm breathing in the air. I feel fine. No fucking radiation sickness for me. Look at the bison, Hatchet interrupted. She pointed out a few. See that one with the white spots? Partial albinism, a birth defect. That one's got horns that are growing into his jaw. That'll kill him in a year or two. Probably half these sorry creatures are blind from cataracts. They've all got tumors. And these are the ones that survived to be born. That shut everybody up. They all looked out at the doomed animals, harumphing and snorting and stamping in the dry prairie grass. 
If it's so bad, Bancroft said, why do you come here? Hatchet turned away. It's a job, that's all. Keep that fucking camera off. They waded through tall grasses, stopping to dislodge ticks and burrs from their clothing. Crumbling farmhouses leered, staking claims they could no longer enforce, their silos flaccid and rotten, leaning loose with a jagged wind. Between stringy clumps of sickly grass, a newborn bison pawed against its mother's dry teats, unable to walk on unnaturally segmented legs, six pairs of grotesque kneecaps twisted painfully beneath its bloated weight. Shahar's jaw dropped as they walked by it. He looked nauseated. The sun hit its zenith, and Hatchet stopped to tie up the trailing edges of her pale blonde hair, sweating. Zeke saw the back of her neck and whistled. Nice ink! She smiled at him, and he fell into step beside her. What's it mean? A secret door, I guess. The tattoo was an ornate black and gray design of a door, slightly ajar, darkness beyond. A metal bolted frame inscribed with a symbol sometimes associated with stalkers and squatters. I got it when I was about your age. My thought process was there's secret doors into everything if you look hard enough. He nodded gravely. Like free movement. Fuck boundaries and borders. He stumbled on a rock. She turned it around on him. So, Zeke, why'd you hire me for? Bancroft thinks he'll expose some conspiracy. You and Shahar? I'm still not sure about. The lowing of the bison herd was still audible on the breeze. Sometimes, I don't know, I feel like I drank too much water. Hatchet snorted. <laughs> what? Like, my parents' house in the city, not far from here. We drank tap water. Sometimes we filtered it. Downriver, downwind of the plant. We had a garden. We ate stuff from the dirt. She could see what he was winding at. And you think it got into you. Maybe. So what the hell? Why not come see for myself? Zeke kicked at a rock. Besides, you know, jail. Besides jail. His young eyes sidelong. What Bancroft said earlier. Why do this? Smuggle people illegally into the zone, risking prison, cancer, and possibly being trampled by mutant buffalo. Hey now. I'm good friends with the mutant buffalo. We're buddies. Zeke laughed and didn't press her further. The uncanny silence of the zone returned, broken only by bird calls. A dim shadow squatted on the edge of the world, something huge rising above the fields and forests and dead corporate complexes. Hatchet stood there and waited for everybody to catch up. That's the sarcophagus right there, she pointed it out. That's what they built over the reactor when it blew, trapping in the worst of the fallout. Shahar let out a low whistle. Whew. Looks like a landfill come alive. 8,000 tons of metal framework and more than 1 million cubic feet of concrete, said Zeke. Hatchet knew he was quoting from that damn zine of pigeons. Bancroft turned to her, surprised. Wait, we're really that close? Yep, this is the epicenter of it all. She knew this area well by now, and had made many trips to and from since her first... Unable to stay away. Oh shit! That's Alicia's house! Pigeon glanced back. What? The trees were all dead, and their corpses twisted up and down the street, pale arms grasping. This house! My friend lived here! 
Shit, I think this is my old neighborhood. Her boyfriend turned around, annoyed. Come on, I want to get to the reactor before sundown. Emily sat down on the curb in the deserted suburb. All half-remembered things warped and bent. Bicycles lay on dead lawns where they'd been dropped. No one left to steal them, she thought. God came down and took everyone up to heaven. Pigeons sighed. Look, if you need to have a moment, Emily interrupted. Just go. I'll catch up. I remember where the stupid plant is. She watched him disappear around a corner and felt nothing. Her mind was lanced and it flooded out. The library, the rocking chair in her backyard, the sprinklers hissing out froth every summer, the red grasses and marshes and creeks thick with tadpoles, each house in its right place, divisions within divisions. She had lied, she realized dimly. The power plant hadn't factored into little Emily's suburban universe. She could faintly picture a coolant tower surrounded by cornfields, but had no idea how to get there. She began to laugh until the laugh became hacking sobs. Maybe she could wait here for Pigeon? He'd come back for her once he realized she was lost. Night fell. It was too cold to sleep. Behind the house, she found the woodshed she'd been hiding in when the ashy snow fell, their childish game interrupted by firefighters and bullhorns and busloads of scared families. A police officer had cut his hand on a wood axe, trying to wrest it away from five-year-old Emily, who had fearfully grabbed the first thing in arm's reach as his boot broke down the door. Thirteen years later, she chopped Alicia's porch into splintery planks. It felt good to split open the quiet. The fire she built was warm, and she slept on the overgrown lawn beneath stars no longer made modest by light pollution. Morning came. She was hungry. Pigeon had the food. She broke into Alicia's house. The food in the cupboard had rotted away, the cans long expired. Her stomach churned and complained. Night fell again. She crept up behind a wild rabbit holding the axe. When she lunged for it, its ears twitched, and it bounded away easily. She fell on herself painfully, bruising her elbow on the axe haft. The next rabbit, though, her blade drank deep and red. With her fingernails, she peeled its skin from head to foot, and the blood wormed deep under her nails. She speared and cooked its little body over the fire. Radioactive casium isotopes have a half-life of 30 years or more. The incident had sprayed an incalculable amount of radioactive material into her neighborhood, and more leaked out every day. None of it was even close to decaying away. It was all around her, invisible. But she felt it in everything, in the blades of grass beneath her feet that the rabbit had eaten before she killed it. She pulled a leg bone off the rabbit and sunk her teeth in. It was delicious. Hatchet woke in the night, like usual. Sleep never came easy. She lay still and stared up at distant stars, the fire they'd built earlier still smoldering and coughing ribbons of smoke. A dirty cooking pot sat nearby, half full of canned beans and sausage. Quietly, she climbed out of her sleeping bag to watch the sun rise over the plains. She looked over at her sleeping companions. Zeke was passed out, his face in a puddle of drool, snoring lightly. Shahar slept hard, 
face drawn, brow furrowed. Bancroft's sleeping bag was missing. So was his pack. Hatchet banged her brush knife on the pot. Everybody wake up right now. Zeke and Shahar bolted awake and looked at her. What's going on? Shahar mumbled. Bancroft's gone. He's taken his stuff. What? Shahar blinked, and a horrible look came over his face. Wait, he was rattling on yesterday about conspiracy theories. The radiation's not real. Hatchet met his eyes. You don't mean... He's going into the reactor. Shahar bolted out of his bedroll. We have to stop him. He's a big whiny prick, but no one deserves that. Hatchet stamped out the campfire while Zeke looked on, fear in his eyes. As they hustled up an old dirt road, the sky became midnight blue and dawn crept up on them. Hatchet ran ahead of the other two. Shahar struggled to keep up the rear, panting and wheezing more than she'd expect from a man of his age. The reactor was built just outside a maze of office complexes near the outer suburbs of the city. Empty high-rises and hotels loomed, some missing gap-toothed windows, others looking for all the world like people might still work there. What'll happen to him? Zeke asked. If he's lucky, Shahar replied in between labored breaths, it'll be quick. Hatchet sighed through her teeth. I don't know what the idiot's trying to prove. They were close now. The explosion from the plant had knocked out all of the windows in the corporate office park. Faded signs advertising HVAC supply businesses and cheap takeout food surrounded them. Not two blocks away, the crumbling hulk of the sarcophagus stood tall and hunched above the complexes and divisions, casting rippling reflections in artificial lakes dotted throughout the water's brilliant green or baked in enamel red. In one of these lakes, something was lying face up, moving jerkily in the shallows. Hatchet rushed over. Bancroft was missing his glasses, and open burns on his face wept pus and blood down his cheeks. His skin was an angry red, chin and a chest covered in bloody vomit, a viscous film floating on the surface of the serene square pool. He'd ripped and clawed at his shirt, and it trailed off him in rags. Beneath his mangled clothes and skin, his muscles twitched uncontrollably, and he breathed in gasps, not at all lucid, eyelids fluttering. Zeke and Shahar caught up, but Hatchet held them back from running to the man. Zeke turned and retched at the sight and smell. Shahar's face drew sharp like he'd seen a ghost. He covered his mouth, but did not look away. They pulled him out of the water and watched him die, on an artificial pebble beach surrounded by sickles of red grass. Zeke pleaded with Hatchet to take the man to safety, to a hospital, anything, tears flowing down his face. When the man's heart finally beat its last, the boy sat down next to the corpse and began to hyperventilate, placing his head between his knees until Shahar went to him and held him. There was nothing we could have done, Shahar said when he let go. The man had something to prove. Going inside must have exposed him to many times the limit of what he could survive. He must have felt like his skin caught fire and crawled to the water. I'm sorry you saw that. He looked deep into Zeke's teary face, sorrowful and gentle, sunrise casting a glow about his dark features. At least he died quick, Hatchet said. 
She very nearly cursed the man out loud for his stupidity, then realized the others would never forgive her. Zeke sniffed and wiped roughly at his face. Does he have a family? Should we bring him to them? Even if I did know his family situation, it wouldn't be best to. Hatchet looked down at the body and searched around inside herself for sorrow or sympathy and came up empty. She continued, Best to leave him. He'll be found eventually, alone, by National Guard. We were never here. The boy's voice broke again. How can you just leave him? Shahar looked sick and resigned. We are breaking the law just being here, remember? He stopped to put his hand on Zeke's shoulder, but the boy recoiled. Diseased things floated to the surface of the artificial pool, stirred to the surface by Bancroft's thrashing. Birds missing eyes, bleached avian skin pockmarked where feathers had sloughed off in the toxic sludge. Hatchet turned to Shahar. How come you know so much about radiation sickness? He looked at her, startled, then lifted his shirt so she could see the scars from numerous hopeful surgeries barely filmed over. Does that answer your question? She'd cracked his mystery. So you were there on the day. Did you work at the plant? Almost. He scratched at the pearly scars. I was a trucker. Barely old enough to drive a rig, even. I was a kid in the wrong place at the exact wrong time. He turned his gaze on her. You know this area too well. You lived here, huh? Grew up not far from here. Huh. Zeke spoke up. I want to go home, okay? His legs were shaking, and he looked as if he'd aged ten years in three hours. Can we please go? I've had enough. Practically begging her. He was so young. Yes, it's time, she said, her heart softening somewhere. Shahar cleared his throat. Not me, Hatchet. Seeing her confusion, he shifted uncomfortably from foot to foot. I showed you my scars. I did chemo, all of it. And it didn't take. That damn thing, he pointed to the sarcophagus, is gonna get me one way or another, and I want to have a say in it. What are you suggesting? She could guess. My father is buried in a cemetery in Eden, on the west side of the zone. I think I'm going to go there and wait it out. Doctor said I've only got a couple months and I'm tired of fighting. I'd like to be buried down there with Pop-Pop when it happens, you know? In spite of everything, Hatchet chuckled. <laughs> I didn't know you were buying a one-way ticket. I'd have given you a discount. Shahar laughed too, loud and raspy. Zeke looked horrified. You people are so fucked up. I don't get it. Hatchet didn't answer him, instead taking Shahar's hand. Well, not for nothing. I ain't bad with a shovel. Shahar gave a weary smile, and their eyes met. The sun rose and drenched the world in exquisite, all-chemical color. The tattoo needle bit into the top of her spine, and Emily ground her teeth against the flaring pain. She gripped her knees tightly, uncomfortably perched on a table draped in plastic sheeting in the tattoo parlor. The artist had been surprised she wanted a neck tattoo as her first, had given her the standard warning that it might mark her in ways that would make life hard. Emily had laughed. A month to the day since she'd stumbled out of the woods, 
and it still felt like she hadn't actually come home. Instead, she was locked out of her sleepy small-town fishbowl, knocking fruitlessly on the glass while its inhabitants stared like she was a wild animal. She had been dirty and starving when the National Guard found her, her clothes torn and stained with blood and smoke, a dull wood axe clutched in her hands like a lifeline. All told, she'd spent a week and a half stumbling around the zone, mostly subsisting on scavenged berries and the occasional wildlife kill, never managing to find Pigeon again, despite calling and screaming for him. Towards the end, she'd started to believe she'd been left behind in the evacuation all those years ago, that her memories of the life they'd relocated to were just hazy dreams, that she'd always been a wanderer in this blighted place. The National Guard had arrested Emily and put her in a bright fluorescent holding cell for several days until she was bailed out by her mother, who had screamed at her on the drive home. She tried to readjust to life at school, but found herself unable to focus in class, dreaming of open fields and empty houses in neat rows like headstones. To make matters worse, her classmates avoided her like she had the plague and whispered behind her back. Her face had landed in a local newspaper under the blaring headline, Teenage Girl Apprehended in Fallout Zone with Bloodstained Axe. She saw a Pigeon around, tried to talk to him, but he just said, What did you tell those fucking feds about me, huh? And pushed her away. She tried to say she hadn't told them anything, but he was intent on his cruelty, nursing his scorned ego, which none of her apologies or explanations could soothe. She hadn't meant to lose him, too. She'd booked the appointment a few days ago, telling herself she could always cancel. During the consultation, the artist had told her how much it would cost. There was no way she could afford that under normal circumstances. But the day before, a quiet girl a year above her had approached. Hey, are you the axe girl? Emily laughed bitterly and turned away. Whatever you want from me, just don't. No, wait, listen, the girl said urgently, grabbing her shoulder. You went to the zone. How did you get in? She answered after a beat, warily. It's not that hard. Though I hear they're building a fence around it, probably because of me. Can you get me in, too? The request startled her, and she spun around. Why? Because, look, I just want to go. I haven't been since I was 11. I'm not scared, and I can pay. The girl pressed six crisp $20 bills into her hand. Please? The artist dipped into a thimble of black ink and continued his work on her neck. So what's with the fancy door? The machine buzzed as it drilled into her skin and the air smelled of disinfectant. Emily didn't feel like explaining herself and let the silence become awkward. Out here, nobody understood. Out here she had nothing, no one. The zone, though, that was hers. Had been before and still was now, even after it was ripped away. She knew there were other refugees, people like her, who had gotten to move on with their lives. That wasn't possible for her anymore. Their secret doors into everything. Um, welcome to the Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness podcast. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, 
My name is Bella. My pronouns are she and her. I am a writer and a musician from the East Bay area. Cool. Um, and we uh, we're very excited to have your your story, um, Exclusion, which everyone just heard. Um, I, I meant to send it to you last night because we got the audio recording. I'll send it to you afterwards. It's really awesome. good. Um, B is just I'm a really stoked. incredible narrator. Um, Great. Can't wait. Yeah. Um, do, 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 do. Uh, do you want to like, just give us a little bit of kind of like, like background on like who you are in the world? Like what, 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 what do you do? What do you spend your time doing? Yeah. Um, so I am a musician and a writer and sometimes a teacher as well. Um, I grew up in the Bay area and I've traveled all over the place. Most of my time is spent doing music but um, I write as well, and I also work in theater, and that's how I generally pay my bills. Um, I've lived a pretty nomadic existence for the last couple of years, but you know, fingers crossed that I think I've just found something a little bit more stable. So we'll see. <laughs> but cool. stable for me is relative. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I doubt many people could relate to that lately. <laughs> um. But cool. Um, do you want to uh, tell us a little bit about kind of about like your like writing journey or whatever to use some like stereotypical phrasing? Why did yeah. you, you start writing? I started writing when I was really young, actually, even before I started playing music. I um, when I was in like third or fourth grade, I really um, I was a voracious bookworm and I read everything I could get my hands on. And I really wanted to be like a writer that was like remarkably young. I, I had this vision of myself as like, oh, I was going to be like a 15 year old novelist, you know, and it's, I was going to be so cool. And um, I did never had like the stick to to finish a novel, but I did write a lot. And, um, and then I started getting into music and music became kind of my primary creative outlet. And um, writing was a thing I sort of did as a hobby on the side as music took over my life more and more. But in the last few years, I started, um, really getting back into writing and it felt like a return and I felt a little bit more complete as a creative person because suddenly I remembered that I loved this thing and that I, as an adult, I could, I was much better equipped to learn how to actually do it right. Rather than, you know, when you're 15 and you're just sort of like putting words on a page and you have no idea what you're doing. Um, and so I got very into like the structure of short fiction writing, especially I got, I've always been really drawn to that. And um, so I started reading in the last two or three years, I started reading a lot of short fiction and, you know, stuff by like Annie Prue and um, really picking apart structure and picking apart setting. And I saw it almost as akin to songwriting. Like you have a very limited time to establish character and setting and, you know, establish an arc to the story or some kind of narrative, even if it's not something that ends in a super, you know, with a super clear resolution. Um, and um, <clears throat> yeah, I began writing short fiction again and that's kind of where I'm at now. <laughs> cool. Um, what, I guess like what, what kind of like inspired the story exclusion? Um, I know you mentioned in your initial uh, uh, email submission to us, um, 
that like it was like sort of inspired by like stories of like Ukrainian teenagers like sneaking into Chernobyl. Yeah, um, I I try to remember what the initial spark for the story was. I think I stumbled on some YouTube video of some kids like backpacking across the exclusion zone in Ukraine, and I remember being really kind of blown away by it, being like part of me being like what are you doing but then the other part of me going this is actually a really interesting cultural thing that's happening that i have no understanding of as a westerner Mm -hmm. um or as an american i should say um and i uh i'd also seen the tarkovsky movie stalker um and that was a big influence on me as well um because i loved that film and um i loved this the way you could tell a story with all these people who had different motivations for going into a place of like, of terrible danger and mystery, you know? And, um, I was living in the Midwest at the time and I had been driving through Iowa a lot, uh, cause I was living in Illinois and I spent a lot of time in Iowa and I was very familiar with the geography of Iowa. And, um, if anybody's ever spent a lot of time in Iowa, especially in the countryside, it's, you know, beautiful rolling hills that's that are geometrically segmented by farms. <laughs> and I had been thinking for a while about what a place like that would look like if agriculture as a project stopped in Iowa and how soon would um, the natural like wildlife and... Um, flora and fauna of the area kind of retake it? What would that look like? So all these things kind of came together and I imagined what would happen if a nuclear reactor exploded in Iowa and the government established an exclusion zone, you know, in a large chunk of Iowa. And then 20 years later, what if there's a girl who gets paid to sneak people into the zone? What's, you know, what's her story? Who are the people trying to get in and why, you know? And that was kind of where the piece started. Um, and it was sort of an exploration of setting more than anything. It it took a couple drafts to find the, the emotional core of it, because I was mostly just really enchanted by this idea um, of this sort of post-agricultural, like, stateless disaster area, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I can, I can relate. I grew up... Um, in the blast radius of a nuclear plant and in like an area that was completely deforested um, from like, you know, like European colonization and Mm. is now just farmland. And like, it's like the setting that you kind of like drop us in and exclusion is very like relatable to like that place where I grew up where I'm like, Oh yeah, this is probably what this would be like. Minus the, the bison there wouldn't be bison there but um what what are kind of like the like earlier drafts of exclusion like i'm always like curious to see kind of like the like stories behind like the evolution of stories Um, sure um i think i didn't have so in this in the final version of exclusion there's multiple perspective shifts there's (laughs) we have two kind of timelines there's the timeline of when emily slash hatchet is 18 and just returning to the zone for the first time ever since being evacuated 13 years ago 
And then we have the second timeline, which is her at 27 or 26. I can't remember how old I made her. <laughs> um, and she's now illicitly sneaking people in for money. <laughs> and um, I think initially I had only written the second timeline. Like I, I hadn't delved much into her as a character. And like I said, it was this sort of exploration of setting more than anything. I was really interested in the details in just what the, the physical and sensory experience of being in this place would be like. And, <laughs> um, and there weren't a lot of stakes and not, not much happened. And, um, you know, I think I, in a lot of ways, they walked around the zone and sort of remarked on it and then left, <laughs> you know? And I showed it to my partner at the time. And my partner was like, you have to have something happen. Like, I really expected that Bancroft was going to die first off. <laughs> Uh, I thought you were setting that up. And also, like, I don't know anything about your main character. Like, why? what's her motivation? Mm -hmm. And so I, I pulled back for a minute and I thought about it. And I actually, like, kind of abandoned the story for a while to let things kind of fester in my brain a bit. Yeah. And I ultimately landed on that um, her arc is kind of an exploration of trauma, you know. Mm -hmm. And she's returning to the site of this horrible trauma in her life because she wants to understand it and also because she feels like she can't escape it. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, the initial drafts of the story were lighter, fair. There was sort of not much happened, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of like stories kind of like start like that. Like a, a friend of mine was telling me about like the, the evolution of, uh, of a novel um, that she wrote recently. And I was blown away to hear what the original draft was like i was like i wouldn't have read that <laughs> um i guess like like how much like um like how much like kind of like digging into like places like chernobyl did you do like in kind of like like preparation for like writing the story or like within like writing the story um because they're yeah. There, there's like a ton of I so this morning I was Google, Googling around about it trying to like be a responsible interviewer um, and like learn a little bit about more about Chernobyl and I was surprised to see that there was a movie called Stalker and I was just like oh wow like and you like pull like a lot of like like um, vocabulary like from like how they talk about Chernobyl um, yeah yeah um well, like I said, Stalker was definitely a big influence on this story. Um, it's also just a wonderful film. And it was sort of, it's interesting because it was made before the Chernobyl disaster, but in a lot of ways seems oddly prophetic of not only the disaster itself, but the cultural, the way that culturally we would think about it. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I did a lot of research um, because as a writer, I generally think that it's good to challenge yourself and try to put yourself in the shoes of people who don't necessarily look like you, who don't necessarily have the same life experiences that you do. Um, and that the way to do that well is to do a lot of research and check in with your friends who maybe share the experiences with the people you're trying to write about and just do about go about that in a, in a diligent way. Um, <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of the sort of write what you know idea. I think 
if we do that, then we end up with a lot of books about people who look like us. And that's boring. Cause that's <laughs> also not how the world is. You know, the yeah. world isn't full of only people who look like me who've had my experiences <laughs> and I would be a bad writer if that's all I wrote about. But also, you know, I tend to write stuff that's in a bit of a science fiction vein, I suppose. Um, and I always want to try to at least mostly get the science right. Um, so I did a lot of really not fun research <laughs> about the effects of long-term radiation exposure to animals mm -hmm. and flora and fauna. Um, I had to, I did some really, uh, really delightful research about um, populations of, of bison and cows in nuclear test sites Aww. and just um, birth defects over time and what it does to animals who live their whole lives in like fallout zones. And um, yeah, it's grisly stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I also did a lot of, I don't know, like, I suppose cultural research, trying to understand a little bit why people um, are so fascinated by Chernobyl to this day and why, especially like people skirt military patrols to like illicitly sneak into the zone. And um, <clears throat> it's interesting. Um, from what I understand, I've never been there, but, um, you know, because the evacuation of Chernobyl and the surrounding area um, happened so suddenly, there's all of this old kind of Soviet era history, like kind of preserved, not preserved like in any way, except that humans haven't interfered with it in 30 years, you know, or mm -hmm. 40 years. Um, so you can, I've seen people walking around in the zone with like pictures, posters of Lenin, up, you know, <laughs> like, and all this old Soviet era history books. And it's, um, I got into this idea of sort of reclaiming your history and um, sneaking back into your own history, especially like, because it's such a site of trauma. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I think it's very, I think it's like very prevalent in like in the story. Um, these people like, uh, like re-exploring like things that happened to them or like coming to terms with, um, kind of like their, like where they're going. Um, yeah. uh, which was, which was like, you know, fun and like hard and like sad to read about. Um, like, is it, uh, I, I'm forgetting all the character. Is it like Sahar that like, like, um, shows up and is like basically buying a one-way ticket. Yeah, Shahar. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so it's it's like there's kind of like a. I I really enjoyed the uh, like pigeon character because pigeon was incredibly annoying, <laughs> um, <laughs> and. Um, I, I I don't know if that was if that was on purpose or if like I've just like seen that seen that guy in like radical spaces before. Um it was um <laughs> yes, it was on purpose. Okay. Um Pigeon is a is was an interesting character because I wanted to write somebody who um 
was sort of romanticizing this awful pain and tragedy that our main character Hatchet had been through. Mm-hmm. Um, and doing it from a perspective that I mostly agree with, like sort of this idea that like, you know, I don't necessarily go as far as Pigeon is to saying like all humans should be removed from the planet, but like <laughs> yeah. the idea that like agriculture as a project, as an industrial project is very bad for the world. And that, uh, you know, the human footprint on all other life on the planet is, you know, ecocidal and toxic and that um, having less of that footprint on the earth would be great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, and so I, I wanted to write that from this perspective of like someone who's like very, very excited and kind of has this big blind spot (laughs) about like, like, yeah, it's this place where there's no people and, you know, and like nothing can live there and except the animals are, are having a great time and, you know, this is how the whole world should be. Like, because I also relate to that kid because there was a time as like a young anarchist when I was, I had big blind spots about the struggles that I found myself aligned with and wanted to be aligned with. And as I've grown older, you know, I've hopefully worked on a lot of those blind spots, but I think that that's something that we see a lot sometimes in leftist spaces and radical spaces is that we tend, folks tend to uh, romanticize struggles that they don't necessarily have a lot of firsthand or community experience with. Mm-hmm. And I sort of wanted to write about that in kind of an oblique way. Um, and I also just thought it would be very funny if he had like written a zine and that like the zine was like the, the thing that kids are like, you know, the way that kids are like, have you read Desert? You know, I wanted I wanted to be like, kids be like, have you read Permanent Exclusion? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nothing against that, De- nothing against Desert, but it's just, you know, I thought that would be funny. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. That definitely came through very well. And um, actually, one of my questions uh, for you was, um, you know, what is the zine Permanent Exclusion like? And if you had to make an analogous, like, real life zine comparison to it what would you choose which oh god i mean see i'm, I'm treading into some dangerous territory here because i don't want to shit talk other know, writers and, and anarchists yeah. but um i mean and like the desert comparison i made a second ago is, is mostly facetious because i actually think that desert is much more responsibly written than i imagine permanent exclusion to be yeah i don't yeah. know if you've ever read evasion um a foundational I, text as a like high school senior same see i loved evasion <laughs> as a kid and i reread it recently and i was like "Ooh, buddy we really got to talk about this one um so i think if, if i had to compare it to something i would say it's probably like evasion and no no disrespect yeah but no, no, you no. know but it's like a very excitably written zine by someone who um appears to be very naive about a lot of the harsher realities of the world that they're diving into, you know? (laughs) And that was sort of what I was drawing from when I imagined permanent exclusion. I am now I'm kind of wishing I had actually written the whole zine out. (laughs) Permanent exclusion. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just like sneak it onto some zine tables every once in a while, you know? Oh my God. Wait, no, that would be, that would be just like a, like a zine that is like a historical and like informational text about this thing that didn't happen. No, you should totally do that. (laughs) This is actually a great idea. (laughs) I'm definitely gonna. 
um, um yeah but yeah there, there there are kind of these like i so, sorry to kind of like make i'm not trying to force you into like being like like saying like like critiquing like texts that exist i think like i think that if, i agree with you like evasion is like a great thing to read as a teenager and like does have these yes. blind spots and it's important for us to kind of like recognize that and you know there, there's also these there's these like other threads of like green anarchism kind of like running through the story and there's like these it's like there's these moments where like the text is kind of verging on the idea that like you know people are like the problem for a lot of like natural like areas um and like pigeon is really really on this like tip about being like well what's the real danger what are they trying to like hide here like people should come back and like but the exclusion zone is the the bankrupt character is oh yeah sorry the bankrupt character Mm -hmm. yeah and like the reality is that it's still just like no it's still very dangerous here and like wildlife is like sort of getting by and like right I don't know. I is it, like where was it kind of like on purpose, like veering into this idea that like na- like maybe wilderness areas should feel dangerous to people or like it wasn't that so much. I mean, like the thing is, is that in some ways Bancroft is right. Like mm-hmm. you know, if you if you live in the Midwest and you're a farmer, like. Like the Midwest right now, I believe is seeing like kind of very worrying crop declines um, as our topsoil erodes more and more, mm-hmm. and um, and that's just an effect of monoculturing. Like there's so much energy and work and money and resources that has to go into the agricultural process to just like reinject nutrients back into the soil. You know, mm-hmm. every time you have a crop harvest because monoculturing is just so bad for any kind of sustainable agriculture and you know the midwest is kind of one big monoculture and um not in terms of its people but in terms of the you know the crops um yeah and so if you allow an area to essentially remain like fallow and grow wild for 30 years um or 20 years or however long the zone has been in effect the soil will probably be healthier <laughs> and full of nutrients, except for the fact that it's also incredibly irradiated. So like he's right in some respects, like, yeah, it's just that, you know, and there are people who have moved back into the exclusion zone in Ukraine. I don't know if they still live there given the invasion, but um, mm-hmm. uh, kind of in defiance of the military and the government. Um, and yeah, I, it's not that I was trying to say that wild areas should feel dangerous. It was more that, um, you know, modern industrial agriculture is a, is, is a absolute blight on the world <laughs> is what I was trying to say. And oh, okay. that like, even an irradiated hellscape would probably have better soil to grow <laughs> shit in. If you don't mind getting cancer by the time you're 40, um, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally, totally. No, thank thank you for for that 
for that explanation. Um, I also to the to the world in general. I have some inappropriate laugh responses to hard and difficult things. Just throwing that out there. It's okay. We all have to cope somehow. Yeah. So, like you, you, you've. Men, you've talked a little bit about this, but there's there's a lot of these kind of like emotional landscapes of like people like revisiting traumatic spaces um, within the story. Um, were like, do you want to talk a little bit about like that as like like a like what kind of like those characters are like uh, experiencing or like journeying through? Yeah, um, like I said. Initially, the story was this sort of exploration of setting more than anything and backdrop. And I um, I was happy to not dig super into it because I think I was avoiding trying to address the really deep and hard things at the center of, of these characters' lives. <laughs> but then, you know, people read it and they're like, hey, I, I feel like I don't understand what's happening. Like, who are these characters? Why are they doing this? What happens? And so I went back. And I really thought about it a lot. And I sort of dug down into what I found was the core of the story, which is sort of the way that going through a very specific kind of trauma can isolate you from the rest of the world. And also the ways in which that going through those traumas can help us find other people who share our experiences. And that's sort of... Um, at the end, you know, to me, the story ends on kind of a happy note, weirdly, because <clears throat> Hatchet and Shahar realize that they have this experience in common. And finally, Hatchet finds somebody who understands her on some level. And um, I know for me in my life, I have a, I won't go into it, but I have a specific set of traumas that I carry around with me. And when I do find those people in those spaces where I can be honest about those things and where I can find some connection and solidarity, um, it is always incredibly positive and freeing for me. Um, but, you know, she kind of goes through a succession of people before she has this moment of connection with Shahar who really don't understand what she's going through. Like Pigeon is, a you know, like I said, kind of an excited young radical kid who's romanticizing her trauma and romanticizing the, the pain that she went through being evacuated from her home. And, you know, she kind of sees almost like a younger version of him in the future with the kid, with the character Zeke, um, mm -hmm. who is also a young, excitable kid, clearly influenced by Pigeon's writing. And um, initially, I think I had written a story to where like, they had ended up being like friends and, and Zeke had like a nice moment of growth with her. And then by the end of like my second draft, I was like, no, like, <laughs> you know, this is not a place for him. He's, <laughs> he's also a visitor in this landscape of trauma. And, um, and then in a lot of ways, Bancroft is sort of a denialist, you know, even though like, um, obviously the evacuation happened like he doesn't believe such fundamental parts of her story and the story of so many people 
similarly affected to her that there's no way they can have any kind of real connection, especially since, you know, he's intent on proving the conspiracy is, <laughs> is true. Um, which part of me when I wrote that initially was like, maybe this is a little far-fetched. And then um, now a couple months on, I'm like, no, this is exactly how people would react if this happened in America. There would yeah. be conspiracy theories to end all conspiracy theories about whatever was going on in the zone. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, that's been very apparent in the last couple of years, like how people would react to something like that, which is, which is frightening. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there were all kinds of conspiracy theories about like hurricane Katrina when that happened and what, and things FEMA was getting up to and the ways that the city was devolving in the face of disaster, which were largely untrue. Um, and I'd shudder to think about what would happen if a natural disaster on the scale of Hurricane Katrina happened again in this country because, oh my God, um, the QAnon folks would run wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um maybe the real conspiracy is the trauma bonding we had along the way exactly see you get me (laughs) (laughs) you 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 get it um you know i don't think any of the characters in the story are me i try (laughs) not to write that way i sometimes see a lot of younger writers and newer writers insert themselves very very clearly into a story and then And I think when you do that, you have a lot of blind spots about that character because we all have blind spots about ourselves and how we move and operate in the world. Um, And it tends to make for like strangely written characters. You can kind of always tell when this is like somebody's author insert. (laughs) Um, But it's interesting. Um, People deal with cataclysmic traumatic events in their lives in a lot of different ways. And um, for Hatchet, the way that she feels like she can feel grounded in this, uh, like I said, cataclysmic thing that happened to her is to return to the site and to sort of bond her life to it in some strange way. And in some ways, that's how I tend to respond to trauma as well is, um, I can't run away from it, you know? Yeah. Not to get too into it, but yeah. So. Yeah, totally. Um, we are about out of time. Um, do you, do you have any advice for like in this, um, very maybe separate context setting for fledgling stalkers looking for <laughs> secret doors in the world? Um, yeah, learn when your local police department, uh, has shift break, because <laughs> uh, that is easy. Um, I'm not encouraging anybody to do any illegal actions or trespass, but you know, um, become acquainted with when your police department goes on shift break. Um, generally it's between like the hours of like four and five in the morning, depending on where you live. Um, and, uh, you know 
Invest in a good set of bolt cutters. The world is your oyster. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, what or <laughs> just to kind of close it out? Um, uh, what else are you working on? Where can people find you? Where can people find your your work? Do you have anything else like out or published or like music? I'm just giving you a landscape to to promote yourself if you want it. Um. I was on Twitter until recently, and then I made the um, healthy life decision to get off Twitter. Mm-hmm. And my life has never been better. Um, but you can find me on Instagram, at Bella Hangnail. Um, I am working on putting the finishing touches on a website, so that will have all my music and my writing. And that's just going to be BellaHangnail.com. Cool. Um, it's not up yet, because WordPress is having some kind of server maintenance, but it should be soon. Cool. Um, and I also make music under the name Bella Hang Now. You can find it, you know, wherever streams are streamed. <laughs> cool. um, yeah. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. And thanks um, for having me. Yeah, of course. Okay. Bye. That was Bella Hangnail's story, Exclusion, narrated by B. Flowers. If you would like to hear B. narrate other things, or would like to get them to read things for you, check them out at voicebea.wixsite.com slash website. If you would like to find Bella elsewhere, Search Bella Hangnail on Twitter, Spotify, or Bandcamp to check out her music and hopefully soon other works of fiction. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go tell someone about it. Whisper its name in their ear. Listen to it while cooking a meal. Write a review and leave it behind as you flee an avoidable human catastrophe. Maybe a bison will find it in 30 years and be intrigued. If you would like to support us as well as the authors, translators, editors, and artists that we work with, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. Subscribers receive at different levels access to digital copies of our archived zines and features, digital copies of new work, Patreon-only content, discounts of printed work, and monthly printed copies of our featured zine mailed to you along with whatever else we feel like that month. You can find us at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness, or check out our website for more free content, including blog posts, zines, books, games, comics, how-to guides, and other works that we have to distribute. We can be found at tangledwilderness.org, or check us out on Twitter at tangledwild. And as always, if you don't want to, or can't contribute financially, please rate and review us and tell a friend. We like having friends. You do incredible things that we are endlessly marveled by. We would especially like to thank these friends. Mickey, Nicole, David, Dana, Chelsea, Micaiah, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Nurk, sorry, Natalie, Kirk, Hugh, Nora, Sam, Chris, and Haas the dog for making this podcast and so many other projects possible. If you feel like a stranger 
that would like to find their story a home in this tangled wilderness, please consider submitting it. Maybe it will be the next permanent exclusion. The pages are hungry. Next month, we bring to you The Ogres of East Africa by Sophia Samatar, which explores colonialism versus mythology. Stay well. We hope you come back.